All right. Well, we're going to start our second episode of the podcast morning report uh, to replace our in-person morning report as we are isolating and social distancing. Uh, my name is Jeremy Moeller. I'm the program director of the neurology residency program at Yale. And I have here uh, a few guests uh, who are going to discuss a case. So presenting the case will be Chris Trainer, one of our PGY4s. Hi, Chris. Hey, what's up? Uh, Lindsay McAlpine, one of our education chiefs and a PGY3 resident, uh, is also here. Hi, Lindsay. Hello. And Jeff Dewey, uh, a fan favorite on our podcast uh, and uh, assistant professor of neurology uh, and uh, associate program director is here as well. Hi, Jeff. Good morning. All right, let's get started, Chris. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the case? Awesome. So I have a very interesting case, a 22-year-old female um, who came into the emergency room uh, in early March for worsening history of headaches and new onset double vision. Ooh, good case. That's a neurological classic. And how do you want to spend our time in this discussion? Um, so she actually had kind of progression of her symptoms and she was seen two different times. So I think talking about her initial presentation and then representation would be beneficial. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about the initial presentation? Sure. So she, as I said, is 22-year-old female. She has just a history of obesity with a BMI of 40, but otherwise no medical history. Um, and she was involved in a motor vehicle accident in early December. Um, she was rear-ended. And at that time, she came to the emergency room and was doing fine, but since then had been having intermittent headaches that had been worsening since early December to the point where now early March, she's saying that her headaches are significantly worse. Um, so she uh, has headaches for, again, the last couple of months. She did not have a history of migraines or headaches before that. Um, she basically was getting headaches two to three times per week that were predominantly right-sided with sharp pain in the back of the head that did radiate back into the neck. Um, she did have phonophobia um, as well as blurred vision with all of her headaches, but no nausea or vomiting. And she was taking Tylenol with some mild improvement. Um, but that was kind of her progressive headache history um, and the associated features. The thing that caused her to come to the emergency room the first time was that she had a new headache or the same headache she'd been having, but this time it was accompanied by double vision. Questions that you might have uh, to flesh out this history? Uh, sure. Yeah. With the double vision, um, where does it maximize in her field of vision? Yeah, so she said that she noted the double vision first when she was just woke up in the morning and she turned on the television in her bedroom and noticed when she was looking at the television that she saw two uh, objects or two TVs that were diagonal to one another. Why do you ask the question, Lindsay, and what are you thinking here? I think that the time course is important. Um, and then also, I think that the where the double vision is will help me localize better. Right. So, and we're talking, Chris, about binocular double vision. So interestingly, uh, yes, kind of, but she basically said that she noticed that when she closed one eye, that um, when she closed the right eye, she saw only single. But when she closed the left eye, she said the vision wasn't quite double, but it was kind of blurred almost to the point where it's double. Hmm. Huh. Of course, we know that monocular double vision uh, usually suggests a problem with light refraction, so an interchamber lens, uh, that type of problem. But the fact that it goes away when closing one eye may raise the possibility of both an ocular misalignment and may maybe also uh, a visual problem 
uh, in that other eye. Jeff, any thoughts about uh, the history of trauma and how that helps us? Yeah, did, you said she was in a motor vehicle accident and uh, rear-ended? That is correct, yeah. She was rear-ended. Did she have a head strike or any loss of consciousness? She did not. No, she no loss of consciousness. She did not strike her head, although there was some concern for hyperextension injury because she was complaining of neck pain with extension. Um, she mm. did have a CT of her head and CT of her C-spine at the time of that motor vehicle accident that were both normal. It sounds like it wasn't a severe accident, but it's certainly anytime someone has a head trauma, it raises the possibility of either direct uh, trauma to the brain or uh, its components, uh, nerve stretch, or I mean, you could conceivably get a cerebrospinal fluid leak, although this doesn't sound severe enough, or a vascular injury, like a dissection. Uh, and in this case, probably a posterior, like a vertebral artery dissection would be more likely. But uh, probably need to hear a little more about her exam before we can differentiate those. Yeah, before we start on the exam, I really want to uh, hone in on the double vision because diplopia, to some extent, is a really nice, clean neurological symptom, especially when it's binocular. Basically, it means that there is some misalignment of the eyes uh, in whatever direction of gaze that's causing uh, skewed uh, or two different versions of the uh, image that the person is focusing on to hit the occipital cortex, and it's experienced as, as seeing something double. And really, that has to be related to a problem with the muscles of eye movement, the six muscles of each eye, or with the three nerves uh, responsible for uh, controlling the movement of the eyes. Three, which uh, controls four of the muscles, uh, cranial nerve four, which controls only one, and cranial nerve six, which controls over only one. A sixth nerve palsy seems unlikely in this circumstance uh, only because uh, we have what sounds like a, both a vertical and horizontal component to the diplopia. We're seeing that uh, there is a, a, a slightly diagonal image. Uh, and so a sixth nerve palsy should give you purely horizontal diplopia. And so that probably leaves us with either four or three. Any thoughts about narrowing down a fourth versus third nerve palsy and what we're going to be looking for carefully on examination? In terms of the third nerve palsy, I'm going to be looking um, for difficulty with vertical gaze and medial gaze. Um, and so we would see a classic eye that's tending towards down and, and out because of overactivation of of those or underactivation of the cranial nerve three. Right. And then what other things are innervated by the third nerve besides uh, those four muscles of eye movement? Possibly have some pupillary abnormalities as well. Right. I think and it's then, interesting that you, you mentioned that, uh, you know, in somebody who has a problem with uh, pupillary sphincter muscles, they could have uh, monocular blurred vision in an eye as well. So something worth thinking about here. Great. And once we narrow this down on examination, of course, uh, we can start thinking about uh, further localization. But uh, that's what we're thinking. Uh, the headache is also a useful clue, but let's put that aside and let's move towards the exam unless there are other important elements of history. Uh, Chris, a neurological review of systems was otherwise unremarkable? Correct, yes. Her exam was actually completely normal. So um, she had normal vital signs, a normal medical exam. On her neuro exam, mental status was intact. Cranial nerves, including her full ocular, ocular muscles, both examined by our resident and ophthalmology, were both completely normal. She had no ptosis, uh, uh, bilateral equal and reactive pupils, and her motor sensory 
reflex exam was also completely normal. She was able to walk in tandem without difficulty. What about a fundoscopic exam? Her fundoscopic exam um, was done both by our resident and ophthalmology. And again, there was no papilledema and no uh, retinal pathology per, per the uh, ophthalmology resident either. And Chris, on the eye movement examination, did that provoke uh, her diplopia or worsen it in any way, especially with particular directions of gaze? It it did not, no. So our uh, resident did ask her if the double vision got worse in any particular direction, but she said it was pretty much constant in all directions of movement. But uh, it wasn't made worse by the exam maneuvers themselves, no. Did she have a head tilt? She did not, no. Why do and I ask? Patients who have some extraocular movement problem may compensate by tilting their head. So particularly with uh, oblique pathologies, um, you may actually have a head tilt, which can be a compensation for the double vision. And was her visual ahead, acuity normal in both eyes? It was, yes. Tested monocularly, I'm assuming. Correct. And Jeff, why do you ask about the visual acuity? Partly because you asked, you mentioned that there was blurry vision in one eye, but also it's just part of a thorough uh, neurologic examination for eye issues. And Lindsay, if there was a problem with visual acuity and you thought that it was an anterior chamber problem, in other words, a refractory problem uh, or refraction problem, what could you do at the bedside uh, to determine that? That's a great question. I'm not sure. Actually, that I don't know either. So you can do a pinhole test. So basically, if you have a refraction problem, then you can do a pinhole test and that uh, will sometimes compensate for, for things. So what do we want to do? So we have somebody with subjective diplopia. We can't find anything on examination. She's having intermittent headaches, and she has this history of a mild traumatic injury. So what? how are we going to investigate this further, and what's on our differential? So on my differential is a dissection of the vertebral arteries, possibly a low-pressure headache due to a CSF leak in the setting of trauma, a cerebral venous sinus thrombus, um, possibly given our history of obesity, you know, the motor vehicle accident could be unrelated. A new onset IAH as well, but she doesn't have papilledema, so probably less likely. And then I've seen in a lot of patients with motor vehicle accidents and neck injuries, um, they often have muscle spasm and, and occipital neuralgia. So I'd want to push on the back of her head as well. I think those are all great differential diagnoses. And we talk about what's called a false localizing sixth cranial nerve palsy, which you can see sometimes with either ho high or low intracranial pressure, and it's thought to be related to strain or stretch or possibly pressure on the sixth cranial nerve as it travels along the skull base. And one wonders if there are sort of increases and decreases uh, or fluctuations in intracranial pressure due to a couple of the differentials you've mentioned, uh, that that could uh, cause a falsely localizing uh, sixth. Chris, had you noticed whether there was higher or lower rates of um, diplopia during times when she had her worst headaches? So she did. This was the first time the diplopia happened, but it was in the in the context of a headache. So she had a coexistent headache with the diplopia that was still ongoing when she was in the emergency room. So she has subjective diplopia, but without obvious abnormalities on exam. And you know, I like the uh, technique of taking a, a bright light and shining it on the pupil to see if there's subtle misalignment. You didn't even see that? We did not, no. So what do you think we should do based on uh, Lindsay's differential diagnosis? So in this case, based on a lot of the things that Lindsay had brought up, including young age as well as obesity, the decision was made to image her, um, particularly the venous system for concern of cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. So she did undergo both an MRI brain with and without contrast, as well as an MRV and an MRA since she was in the scanner, all of which were 
completely unremarkable. No evidence of diffuse pachymeningeal enhancement, uh, which might indicate uh, low CSF pressure? There was not, no. And we have uh, recently talked about uh, some of the subtle signs of low CSF pressure headache, uh, including a decrease in the size of the uh, cisterns, the prepontine space, empty, partially empty cella, things like that, that apparently can be helpful as well. So none of that looked abnormal. Nope. It was a beautiful 22-year-old brain. So what happened then? Ophthalmology did note on their exam that she had severe dry eye, particularly in the right eye. She was treated um, as a potential migraine, um, given that she was having these recurrent headaches and the symptoms were time-locked or the symptom was time-locked. She was given um, eye ointment for moisturization. And by the time she was discharged in the emergency room, her symptoms had improved, both with uh, Tordal fluids and IV magnesium. However, uh, six days later, she represented to the emergency room with now constant double vision outside of her headaches, which um, were still ongoing, but had improved with the ED treatment, represented with constant double vision. And tell us about her examination then. So at that time, she was complaining of clear horizontal diplopia that was definitely worse when looking to the left. And she had a clear uh, left cranial nerve 6 palsy on exam with absolutely no ability to abduct the left eye from midline. So who would like to volunteer some differential diagnoses for a left 6th nerve palsy? We talked about falsely localizing 6th, but we don't see anything on exam to suggest some pressure abnormalities. But any other things you want to put on that list? Cavernous sinus pathology as well, given the six travels through there. Yeah, I would agree with that. So let's think about the course of the sixth cranial nerve, and, and I'll walk you through it. So the nucleus of the sixth nerve uh, actually lies just underneath the facial colliculus, uh, adjacent to the uh, fourth ventricle in the in the pons. The sixth nerve then courses anteriorly through the uh, basis pontus, through sort of the lateral aspects of the basis pontus. Uh, exits the brainstem from the prepontern cistern, travels along the uh, skull base, enters the cavernous sinus, and then uh, exits the cavernous sinus and enters the orbit through the uh, superior orbital fissure uh, and innervates just a single muscle, the lateral rectus muscle on that side. And so if we're thinking about structural or functional abnormalities, Again, it could be a problem in the brain stem, in the pons, but we'd expect in that circumstance that there might be some facial weakness uh, or contralateral uh, arm and leg weakness. Uh, there could be a problem in the meninges or in the prepontine cistern, cistern or along the skull base. But again, usually you'd be able to see that on uh, imaging. Uh, as you mentioned, Lindsay, there could be a problem in the cavernous sinus. There could be a problem at the level of the superior orbital fissure. And then, of course, we don't. We do have to consider the possibility that there's an uh, eye muscle problem, so thyroid disease, myasthenia, uh, things like that. Uh, that wouldn't really explain the headaches, but looking very carefully at the orbits as well. Uh, imaging so far has been normal, but we haven't looked for signs of inflammation or uh, a subacute or chronic uh, meningeal process, which is the other thing that could give you headaches. Uh, with a single cranial neuropathy. So Chris, no facial weakness, no contralateral weakness, nothing else to suggest brainstem pathology? No, the rest of her exam remained intact other than the development of the new uh, left eye cranial nerve 6 palsy. Any papilledema? No. And why do you ask, Lindsay? Given her, her risk factors, I think the fact that the course is so long of the cran sixth cranial nerve, I'm still thinking whether she has a high or a low pressure headache. What should we do next? 
So the case was staffed with me, um, and I was also, like Lindsay brought up, concerned about potential IIH since we had not done a lumbar puncture up to this point, um, but also felt that, you know, obviously our standard MRI slices could easily miss something in the area of cranial nerve 6. So we asked for a repeat MRI brain with thin cuts through the brainstem as well as an MRI of the orbits just to take a look at the cranial nerves as they went um, into the orbit and then planned for an LP. Her repeat uh, imaging actually was abnormal. So on her repeat MRI with thin cuts through the brainstem, there was uh, at the level of the pons, a uh, area of dural enhancement and thickening that was medial to Meckel's cave and involving the posterior portion of Durello's canal on the left side, which would localize um, to obviously her cranial nerve 6 palsy. So she was admitted then for lumbar puncture, which was accomplished inpatient. Her CSF uh, results showed uh, 12 nucleated cells in tube 4 with a 90% lymphocytic predominance, normal protein, um, and normal viral studies, and a normal opening pressure. Chris, did she have any inflammatory markers in her serum? She did. So we ran them at the time of admission. Her uh, CRP was 5.6 and her ESR was 21, both mildly elevated. So I ask that uh, the history of relapsing or remitting cranial neuropathies always makes me worry about an inflammatory syndrome, preferentially affecting the cranial nerve exits or the meninges nearby. But oftentimes these are systemic inflammatory syndrome. So I was wondering if there was any evidence of such. And what are, what are some of the things, what are some of the processes that could cause uh, a subacute relapsing, remitting, mild meningeal inflammatory process? A bit of a broad differential. We think about things like sarcoidosis, uh, lupus, uh, even lymphomas could start there. Uh, there's also some slow-growing bacterial infections, although that her CSF profile doesn't seem consistent with that. Anything you would add, Lindsay, to that differential? Sjogren's. Yeah, really, sort of in the broad buckets of categories, we have autoimmune, infectious, and uh, neoplastic. And as you said, in terms of the autoimmune processes, we often think of things that cause a basal meningeal process like uh, granulomatous disease, sarcoid. In terms of the infections, the slow-growing ones we often think about would be Lyme and other tick-borne infections, syphilis. Uh, complications of HIV uh, can cause a subacute meningitis, uh, as can opportunistic infections. And then neoplastic, uh, we have seen several cases of lymphoma causing this, but also uh, leptomeningeal carcinomatosis, so metastasis from uh, distant sites. So uh, looking for uh, things like that. Chris, did you do a CT of the chest to look for lymphadenopathy? So we discussed the case with uh, neuroimmunology and neuro-oncology. Um, and given her age and lack of other systemic symptoms, we decided to spare her the contrast at that at this time um, with the uh, idea that this was just given her age more likely to be inflammatory than neoplastic. So the uh, plan of care was that we would uh, treat her with high-dose steroids, uh, IV methylpred one gram for five days, um, which she'll complete as an outpatient, and then re-image and follow her clinically in about two to three weeks. Or we did send the broad differential that everyone mentioned. We sent all the serologic markers for all of the standard uh, rheumatologic diseases, including lupus, um, Sjogren's markers, uh, rheumatoid factor. We sent Lyme. We sent all the standard infectious panel. Um, I sent uh, flow, cytometry, cytology, both the B and T cell rearrangements for CNS lymphoma, um, all the uh, serologic markers in the CSF for our common demyelinating diseases, um, the, the ACE, uh, NMO, uh, MOG, uh, oligoclonal bands. So far, her workup is still mostly pending. Um, some of the serologic tests 
for sure Grins and Lupus have come back negative thus far, but most of the rest of her testing is still in process because it was all sent just this past Saturday. Yeah, the only reason I was bringing up the CT of the chest is for lymphadenopathy, not so much for neoplastic disease, but uh, for uh, granulomatous disease, for sarcoid. Absolutely. So how did you treat her? So like I said, we gave her um, IV methylprednisone one day in the hospital, um, and she preferred to finish the rest of her treatment as an outpatient. So it was arranged for her to actually go to the Neuroimmunology Infusion Center um, to finish her treatments this week. So it'll be kind of a stay tuned thing um, to see what her ultimate diagnosis is. With one dose, she had mild symptomatic improvement in her headache, but her uh, cranial nerve 6 palsy remained you know, the same uh, as it was when she was admitted. If she worsened, what are some of the other things we could do? So, you know, I think the differential being broad still, um, you know, if this is a CNS lymphoma or inflammatory process, certainly the steroids would help either of those things. Um, If she continues to worsen, um, she might require more invasive uh, treatments or or workup. Although obviously we'd have to be very careful from a biopsy standpoint going in the area near her her brainstem, but that would be an option and was entertained as part of the discussion of her differential. Yeah, these these problems, especially when they're sort of basal or brainstem meningitis, is that the risks associated with getting tissue can be really high, uh, Mm -hmm. as you said. Uh, But if it does become more of a disseminated process, uh, that'd be something to consider. But as I said, looking for tissue elsewhere can really help. So uh, one thing to consider would be the CT of the chest. uh, And if there was lymphadenopathy there, that's something that could be easily accessible. Uh, And I would consider something like sarcoid to be fairly high on the differential for six nerve palsy. So I think this would be a good time to wrap up. Uh, I think it's good to use a fresh case that has not been totally resolved. I think we had a great discussion about that. Uh, Jeff, you said you found uh, a summary of uh, some syndromes to think about with six nerve palsy. Do you want to do you want to run through us, uh, run us through that uh, so that we can uh, do some learning and think about what we can do next for this patient? So this was a paper from one of the ophthalmology journals. Uh, It was the Journal of Ophthalmic and Vision Research uh, from 2013 by Azarmina and Azarmina. And it's titled the sixth syndrome of the sixth cranial nerve. So there are six syndromes that they list. It's really divided anatomically. The five syndromes uh, reflect uh, injuries where there are multiple other structures nearby. And then the sixth syndrome is the isolated sixth nerve palsy, which really is probably the most applicable to this case. But the first case, uh, the first syndrome they describe is the brainstem syndrome. And that has to do with lesions in the brainstem itself. And really the syndromes you'll see with that are those that include multiple surrounding structures. So probably the the ones we've heard of would be Raymond's syndrome. So that's a sixth nerve paresis plus a contralateral hemiparesis due to injury in the pyramidal tract and the sixth nerve as it runs adjacent to it. There's Millard-Gubler, which is sixth nerve paresis, ipsilateral seventh nerve paresis because the sixth nerve runs right by the seventh nerve nucleus. And then again, contralateral hemiparesis. And then there's Fulville's syndrome, which reflects a more broad injury to the sixth nerve, the PPRF affecting horizontal gaze, cranial nerves five, seven, and eight, and also you get a Horner syndrome with that. We we had seen a case of uh, Millard-Gubler or Gubler uh, syndrome uh, recently, and again, uh, remember the facial colliculus. Uh, as you said, the sixth nerve nucleus lies in the periventricular aspect of the pons, and fascicles of the seventh nerve swing around that, uh, and so. If you get a nuclear sixth nerve palsy, you're almost certainly going to get a, a lower motor neuron seventh nerve palsy as well. The next syndrome they mentioned was elevated intracranial pressure syndrome. And this really has to do with a stretch on the sixth nerve. This would be the false localizing sign that you were mentioning earlier. 
they also group into this uh, subarachnoid syndromes that have to do with meningeal pathology, uh, and that sort of brings true with this case. One that we don't see very often, uh, they call the Petrus apex syndrome, uh, and this has to do with injury at Dorello's canal uh, by adjacent structures in the Petrus apex. Probably one that's more relevant uh, that we see more often in neurology is a cavernous sinus syndrome. And of course, this can affect any of the structures running through the cavernous sinus. So that's the third cranial nerve, the fourth cranial nerve, the superior two divisions of the fifth cranial nerve, the sympathetic plexus, the sixth cranial nerve, and then the internal carotid artery. And you can see any of those in combination, depending on the extent of the lesion there. Uh, and that has a broad differential that's probably beyond the scope of this podcast. And then they mentioned the orbital syndrome, uh, so in, injuries inside the orbit, either to the nerve or the muscles themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the isolated sixth nerve palsy, which has a number of things on the differential, including inflammatory disease, uh, diabetic, isolated neuropathy. And they just uh, raised caution for possible mimickers of a sixth nerve palsy. So a very selective case of myasthenia gravis, thyroid eye disease, uh, and an orbital fracture that was not previously detected. So of those, we're really thinking that this patient, because it's such an isolated sixth and because of the imaging findings that we have, is more likely to be the basal meningeal uh, type of syndrome uh, than any of the others. But that's a great summary. So what's interesting about this case is the delay between what we thought was the inciting event, which was the automobile accident, and the onset of her diplopia. Uh, as I learned, I think, from you, Dr. Muller, everything starts somewhere. Uh, and patients often will attribute things to significant events in their life, whether or not they're truly related. And so I think it was easy in this case to initially focus on how could a motor vehicle accident have caused this diplopia. But a three-month delay would really be quite odd unless it was a gradual process, such as accumulating intracranial pressure uh, or maybe a late, a late infarct from a dissection. So I, I think we learned here that always keep our differential a little bit broad and consider the possibility of something unrelated when there's a significant delay. Yeah, more the merrier.